Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. Well, equity investors have been sitting on the sidelines lately. The ASX is down over 10%. The US market is down over 20 And investors are really trying to process the implications of rising interest rates and persistently higher inflation. One real consequence is that equities may no longer be the be-all and end-all of portfolios. I think for many investors, it's been all about equities for maybe 10 years now, and they're having to rethink that. So today I'm speaking with Dania Zinurova, Portfolio Manager at Wilson Asset Management, who manages a portfolio of alternatives, something that may be increasingly interesting in this environment. Dania, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much, Emma. I'm a huge fan of yours, so very excited to be on your podcast. It's, well, I was lucky enough to see Dania at the ASX Investor Days. Any of you who happen to get a chance to come along uh, will enjoy listening to this podcast. She did an extraordinary job of talking about an asset class that we probably haven't given anywhere near enough attention to as equity markets were roaring, right? And so now we're starting to look around. So, Dania, can you tell us what is included broadly in the category of alternatives. If I'm a retail investor, I've never looked at this category before. What sort of investments do you look at in your portfolio? Yeah, I like always starting with definition. So when I talk about alternative investing, I talk predominantly about tangible assets. And from those tangible assets and their characteristics, we derive the value. So That would include unlisted real estate, infrastructure, private equity, real assets. Within real assets, there is the whole range of investments as well, like water rights, agriculture, timber, etc. And I also include private debt, Um, in particular, you know, plain vanilla, something like senior debt structures where the backing asset can be a tangible asset or a tangible business. And it's really a very broad definition, constantly evolving. That's why I think just focusing on the tangible characteristics would help to categorize it as a very specific asset class, very different from traditional asset classes like listed equities and fixed income. That's a fantastic definition. I think it helps for people. <laughs> it's, uh, when you talk about alternatives, the, the name can be a little bit intimidating, I think. Infrastructure yeah. is one of the areas that most people at least feel like they have a loose understanding of. And it's been a really challenging environment because we're always told that infrastructure assets will hold their value in a downturn. And then the COVID downturn, the things that got hit hardest were toll roads and airports and things that we would ordinarily consider yeah. infrastructure. Do infrastructure assets help in an inflationary environment? This is obviously the thing people are so concerned about right now. Are they going to support people's portfolios? Yeah, so that's, uh, you know, it's a question within a question because first of all, when we talk about infrastructure, um, often we would think about ports, airports, other transport-related infrastructure, in other words, sectors, that are closely correlated to GDP. 
In reality, infrastructure on its own offer a very broad and deep opportunity set. So we would look at sectors within infrastructure, like social infrastructure, and that includes schools, hospitals, prisons, and other assets. It includes renewable energy infrastructure, utilities, yes, transport as well, like ports and airports and toll roads, um, but also the newly added sector like digital infrastructure. So even within infrastructure portfolio, I always advocated having diversity is very important, understanding what are the different risk drivers and return drivers within the, the asset class is also very important. And when we look at different strategies available in the market, we can invest in this asset class across the whole risk return spectrum. So when we look at the transactions where an investor takes a lot of operational risk, they would be considered as high risk, high return and more of a private equity type of infrastructure transactions. When we look at um, sectors or transactions within social infrastructure, renewable or digital, they tend to be more characterized as core infrastructure. And core infrastructure is an excellent addition to the portfolio. So let's say we look at the infrastructure performance last year, uh, even in 2020, you, you might remember when all super funds in Australia, they were asking this question, how do we assess how much value we lost um, during the pandemic, during the lockdown? And that's a really difficult asset class to assess, in particular when there are no transactions happening in the market. But investors had to make a call because predominantly their portfolios were exposed to GDP-linked infrastructure. And so obviously having 50 or 60% of your portfolio invested in ports and airports would hurt the performance in, the, in those environments. Investors who had a more diversified infrastructure exposure, they actually benefited um, from having this asset class in the portfolio. Now, if we look at the current environment, we are obviously worried about increasing inflation. We are worried about rising interest rates. So it's a really good time to look at more of a core infrastructure where we look at long-term contractual revenues. Often they are in place for 20, 25 years. Often they have CPI um, hedge or they link to inflation. Um, in some cases, um, contractual revenues, they have annual fixed reviews. So there is some embedded or what they call natural inflation hedge in, in those sectors. And those sectors would be social infrastructure, renewables, utilities, digital infrastructure. So Donnie, can you tell us about what is included in the category of alternatives. If I'm a retail investor, I've never really looked at this category before. What, what sort of investments would I be thinking about? It's an excellent question. Excellent question, Gemma, because it's a very broad opportunity set and you'd find that um, depending on investor type, geography type, definitions could be different. So from my perspective, I focus on tangible assets within alternatives. Examples would be unlisted real estate, unlisted infrastructure, private equity, 
real assets, uh, within real assets, it could be, again, the whole range of uh, various sectors such as agriculture, water rights, timber, and some others. And I also include private debt, but predominantly, you know, plain vanilla um, senior loan type of strategies. And so looking at those tangible assets, uh, we can then derive the actual characteristics um, from those specific asset classes and derive the value. And I, I do get questions from time to time whether we invest in cryptocurrency or hedge fund strategies. I don't consider those asset classes um, as a good fit within my definition. Oh, that's really interesting. We probably will get that question, won't we? <laughs> Although I don't, I don't know if anyone's quite so keen about crypto anymore. It was a big exactly. thing for a while there. Maybe, <laughs> maybe with Bitcoin down 60%, we're not quite so interested. So I think that definition of tangible assets helps a lot of people. I mean, alternatives is, is a term that makes people a bit anxious, I think. But infrastructure is one of the areas most people feel they have a grip on. They feel they understand it. They understand the benefits of long-term assets that are kind of going to deliver a consistent return. It was a bit tricky during COVID because most people think of toll roads and airports and so on, and these assets that were supposed to be really stable ended up losing all their income for a couple of years. Do infrastructure assets help in an inflationary environment? And we're terribly concerned about inflation at the moment. Are they going to support your portfolio in that environment? Yes, absolutely. It's it's an excellent class, asset class to include um, in any investment portfolio. And it's not only about the potential inflation hedge benefits, but also other characteristics. And I think really important to understand as well that infrastructure as an asset class can offer the whole range of various um, strategies across risk return. So we define infrastructure um, as core asset class predominantly, which means if there are transactions that take on significant operational risk, this would be more likely to be a private equity type of infrastructure deal. So within WMA portfolio, um, our exposure is predominantly focusing on core infrastructure. So stable, mature assets, most of them have long-term contractual revenues. So those contractual revenues, they tend to be CPI linked or inflation linked or have annual fixed increases. So it's a really good asset class to have something to protect from rising inflation, but also an asset class that could deliver a relatively stable, predictable yield over long term. And within infrastructure, understanding various risks associated with various sectors is very important. So as you said, during the pandemic, obviously, assets such as airports, ports, toll roads, they um, suffered from the performance uh, perspective and they were probably not the best uh, asset classes, not the best sectors to have in the portfolio. But it comes down again um, to how you construct uh, an investment portfolio and having diversification even within asset classes is really important. 
One sector you did mention was venture capital, and I find this really interesting. It was a sector that everyone was very, very excited about, particularly in the early stage tech startup boom when, yeah. you know, every every tech company felt like it was going to the moon and people put rocket ships and spaceships on their Twitter emojis and so on. <laughs> uh, you know, it felt like that was the way to make your fortune in the most extraordinary fashion mm-hmm. and tech was the place to be. But tech's been absolutely obliterated in the last 12 months as interest rates rise and people are concerned about inflation and so on. So that sector doesn't look quite so hot anymore and people aren't willing to pay for that profitless growth or investors aren't. Yeah. What does venture capital look like now? Has it changed? It has. It has, Gemma. And, you know, it's one of those asset classes within alternatives that I would say has quite a high equity beta. So both venture capital and private equity and venture capital probably more so because often venture capital investors rely on listed equities market in terms of the exit. So IPO would be one of the main exit strategy uh, for venture capital investors. And what we're seeing now, given this high correlation with listed equities, a lot of late stage venture capital investments, they are seeing correction in values. Uh, probably not to the same extent at, as we see uh, on the listed side. Still, it does affect venture capital investors. On the other hand, if you think from the opportunity perspective, it could be a really good asset class to look into right now, in particular for early stage venture capital. So when we are talking about venture capital, there are various capital raising rounds categorized by A, B, C, D. So C, D would be, um, would be considered as late stage capital raising, closer to IPOs. Um, there are quite a few pre-IPO strategies in the market. But looking at early stages, so capital um, raising rounds A and B, could be an interesting opportunity right now because the entry valuations are much more attractive than let's say they were two years ago. So even within tech, and to be honest, I do um, have really strong conviction in tech sector because I think it's inevitable that digitalization will continue developing across various sectors of economies and within our society. We can't imagine living without technology. So it's inevitable there will be uh, further investments in this sector. But because we are talking about venture capital, it's a long-term investment. Even in Australia, you know, some people are calling Australia now like um, second Silicon Valley because we saw such a uh, strong growth in this asset class over the past two, three years. In reality, venture capital in Australia hasn't gone through one cycle yet. So most of the venture capital portfolios you'd see in the Australian market, they have quite a minimum um, realized return. So yes, they've been very successful investors and some of the investments performed really well, but they cannot be considered as realized investments. While in the markets like the US or Europe, these are 
very mature venture capital markets. And it's easier to assess what was the track record. And I'm talking about realized track record in those markets. So in other words, you wouldn't just go and invest in any venture capital strategy or in any venture capital investment, but selecting the ones that have strong track record, but also can have the flexibility to invest in early stage, that could be a really good timing, I think. Yeah, the flip side of a route in markets is it does open up opportunities if you can find those things that exactly. uh, have the long-term potential. Yes, yes. And you said something, Gemma, I, I do remember from one of your presentations, um, what are the, you know, the three key factors to focus on right now? And one of them was quality. So I do think looking at any investment in the current environment from the quality perspective is extremely important. So quality and the entry valuation. Yeah, that's changed a great deal in the last few years, hasn't it? It, uh, it used to feel like anyone who had a great story could get, it could raise enormous quantities of capital in the market. That seems to have changed a lot. Yes, yes, absolutely. So that sort of leads neatly into private equity. And you may like to explain the difference between private equity and venture capital, what stage that they're investing yeah. in and why, why you would want to look at one versus the other. And then also how that's been affected by the changes in markets because there was for a while there talk about a bubble in private equity as much as there was a bubble in every other market because frankly yeah. it felt like that too. A lot of money chasing relatively few assets. Has that changed as well? It is changing. I would say the whole private equity industry here in Australia is going through some interesting structural changes. And I'll talk about this in a minute. I would start with your first question. So how does venture capital compares to private equity? And I like, you know, visualizing the charts where you plot risk and return and venture capital would be up high on the risk return spectrum. So it's an asset class where as an investor, you can expect quite a um, significant dispersion between losers and winners within the portfolio. And this is one of the reasons when uh, we look at any venture capital uh, portfolio, there would be 20, 25, in some cases, 30 deals within one portfolio. So um, having a very diversified portfolio is really important because generally speaking, 70% of a portfolio would be within losers, or in other words, they won't make any money. And then 30% of the portfolio, generally speaking, are likely to be star performers. Um, private equity would be plotted more in the middle of the risk return curve. And even within private equity, we can break it down further. So in, in a sense, what, what is private equity? To some extent, it's very similar to listed equity. The only difference is that we invest or buy equity stakes in unlisted or privately owned businesses. And within private equity, there are strategies like private equity growth. Those are the ones that focus on 
younger businesses with um, great potential for further growth, either through geographical expansion, product line expansion, or other factors. And usually when we look at private equity growth, um, investors tend to buy minority stakes. So 30, 30, 40, 30%, 20% in some cases. So it's you know, providing this extra capital for growth and bringing some expertise uh, from the strategy perspective. And then there are strategies like buyouts. Buyouts, they tend to buy majority equity stakes in the businesses. Often these are businesses that face some succession planning challenges or require very specific technical expertise to continue growing. Um, and within buyout, we can even split it into mid-market buyout and then large buyout. Um, so, you know, as, as you can see, the whole range of opportunities, again, depending on the risk appetite and investment objectives, private equity can serve really well within the portfolio. From my perspective, I tend to focus on three strategies. One, private equity growth, because I do believe um, within Australian market, there are a lot of opportunities among small, medium-sized enterprises. And you know this market has been performing historically um, really well compared to the markets like the US and Europe. And I saw actually some, um, some data showing that Australian uh, private equity growth outperformed uh, all other markets when we look at the vintage year um, 2010 to 2017. And, um, on top of that, I like investing in mid-market buyout. So mid-market buyout is a fairly um, small space, a small segment um, in the Australian market. Usually these are the businesses with enterprise value of 100 million to 300 million. And that's a sweet spot because as you mentioned, once we move to the larger end of the market, this is where we'll see a lot of competition, both from Australian players, but also from global private equity players. And obviously when there is more competition, it's very likely that valuations will be very high. Um, it's also worthwhile looking at different sectors. So some sectors like, for example, healthcare tends to be quite overvalued at the moment. And it's been very popular sector uh, among private equity players. So I wouldn't necessarily um, like investing in the current environment in healthcare via private equity. I would consider infrastructure, real estate, healthcare, but maybe not private equity because the entry valuations are very high. Um, so it's about finding those pockets of opportunities where the deal flow is still at a healthy level. And to be honest, it is looking at the number of M&A transactions um, and also finding the sectors with still attractive entry valuations. 
And that could be at the moment tech, for example, would be a really interesting one, very similar to venture capital, because you'd expect some correction within that, that sector. Um, sectors that um, are supported by this very important mega trend like climate change. That's a very interesting one. And we, we have some investments within the portfolio um, that are following this mega trend. And sectors that are focusing on um, consumer behavior. And it's, it's very interesting how post-pandemic, uh, we saw much more attention and growth happening in the wellness sector. So quite a few private equity players are now um, finding really attractive deals within wellness, um, healthy diet, you know, everything around well-being rather than directly healthcare. That's quite an interesting one. I think post-pandemic, there's quite a bit of focus there. Definitely, definitely, yes. So I think like diagnostic, wellness, um, Yes, um, you know, everything like around supplements, um, getting like a lot of attention and I can see a lot of capital inflow into those sectors. It's so interesting, the breadth of opportunity sets, you know, it almost makes the listed market look quite quite limited it's quite I know extraordinary. isn't it Gemma you know it's so interesting because I um I always think you know if we think about our listed equities market here in Australia it's basically dominated by two major sectors and so I do think for any investor you know be it institutional retail wholesale investor looking outside listed equities would open up the whole broad opportunity set of new um, investments and new strategies. You're absolutely right. I, you know, the biggest challenge for retail investors is they haven't traditionally had any access to it. And I think we do get the question quite frequently. A lot of investors I find are either very comfortable with the materials sector or not comfortable with it at all. Mm -hmm. And so they just hold BHP and a couple of other bits and pieces and tend not to have too much yeah. exposure. And if you exclude materials, you know, the Australian market can feel tiny, yes. but they don't necessarily have any access to the kinds of things that you're talking about. Let's have a little talk about credit and sort of the less... Uh, equity-based component of your portfolio. And then I'd also yeah. love you to explain how you build a portfolio because clearly this is not just picking a couple of things and banging them together in the same sector. Yeah. So tell me about credit and how that's going. You know, what are the challenges in a rising interest rate environment? We've had investors who have been really loath to look at any kind of fixed income for a long time because rates yeah. have been so low. And then those who have had exposure have had the double whammy of a sell-off yep. as, as valuations yep. plummet, even though yields are going higher finally. So it's been really tough for fixed income. Yes. What's it's, it looking it's, like uh, it's, it's fascinating because you'd kind of think the traditional portfolio of 60-40 um, equities fixed income should, you know, should work in any um environment but that that was quite interesting to observe that both of those asset classes um they they kind of suffered um suffered a lot and you know in a way investments in private credit 
in the current environment uh, could be a good idea because and, and actually, what we do see it now, Gemma, when super funds um, are taking their money out of fixed income and going into private credit, because most of the deals within private credit, they would be structured with floating rates. So if you are looking at having some interest rate hedge within the portfolio, and at the same time focusing on yield, then private credit could serve well. Again, I wouldn't necessarily recommend looking at mezzanine or some, you know, very exotic structures within private credit. That's not the best time right now. But looking at senior um, loan structures where businesses are highly um, cash producing and they are good quality businesses, mature businesses with healthy balance sheets, their opportunity set is really attractive in the current environment. A year ago, I was looking at private credit and I looked at both private credit and real estate debt. Real estate debt, a lot of the deals were around residential sector, which I, I didn't really like. Um, but on the private credit side, it was still interesting, albeit you know, the running yield was probably around four, four and a half percent. While I look at the same strategies today, they're yielding six and a half, seven percent. And it's an obvious, for me, it's an obvious strategy to include in the portfolio right now. Um, so we've been actually doing quite a lot of research in that area and planning to add it to the portfolio this year. Oh, that's really interesting. It is very interesting talking to people, hearing their perceptions of fixed income change in the current environment, yes. how, <laughs> how people are starting to think about constructing portfolios differently. No one's supposed to have a favourite child, but you look across such a broad range of things. Is there anything that is most attractive to you that you enjoy investing in most? Um, yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. Um, I, um, I would say, you know, throughout my career, I focused um, on alternatives as an asset class. I really like asset classes like real estate and real assets because they are quite different. And often from the diversification perspective, I would say they are the ones that I would include first. Um, but for me, it's understanding what do I need within the portfolio. So if I take WMA portfolio as an example, my aim is to have about 40% of the portfolio invested in core income producing assets, you know, quite boring, plain vanilla. I'm talking here about core infrastructure, water rights, core healthcare real estate, something with predictable or fairly predictable, stable um, yield over longer period of time. And it's also because WMA portfolio is structured as a listed investment company. So I always have to think about growing the profit reserve and ensuring we can grow the dividends to our shareholders over time. So really important to have this income component. And then 
60% of the portfolio goes into growth opportunities. Now, growth opportunities can be across all those asset classes. It's about finding strategies that make sense in the current economic environment. So one of the examples of the recent investment within the growth part of the portfolio was in turnaround transformation private equity strategy. Um, I think on the back of the pandemic, the opportunity set for this type of strategy is extremely attractive now because so many sectors, they went through significant structural changes. So from the entry valuation perspective, very interesting strategy. Also very important, of course, to have expertise and technical skills in particular for turnaround and transformation. Um, but I am expecting this strategy within the portfolio to deliver some really good returns over the next four to five years. Now, when I look at this broad opportunity set, the way I like to think about portfolio and how to construct the portfolio is from those megatrends perspective. We are talking about quite illiquid asset classes that require a long-term investment horizon. So I want to ensure I have macro trends within the portfolio that can yield really good results over 10 plus years. And the four megatrends I follow within the portfolio, one is climate change, second is growing aging population, Third is increasing demand for food. And in particular now, as I mentioned, the focus on wellness and healthy eating, healthy diets. And then finally, digitalization. You know, I think it's um, very difficult to argue with the fact that this trend will be there over the next decades. Those four trends are also the things we hear most frequently from our investors about yeah. wishing to get some exposure to. Yeah. <laughs> how, do I, how do I get exposure? How do I get exposure? And a lot of the ways that people have played those uh, those trends, particularly digitalization, have changed. You know, yeah. and some people are thinking about how they can do that differently. Donia, you often provide commentary in the media. Wilson Asset Management's a great source of broader commentary, but also what you're talking about now is clearly of interest to people in the current environment. Where can people go to find out more about you, about your portfolio and about what you're thinking? Uh, we we focus, yes, in fact, we, we focus a lot on the communication to our shareholders and to the broader market that focuses on educational component. I am a strong believer in um, the fact that before making any investment decision, you do need to understand first what are those asset classes about and what are those strategies adding to the portfolio. So we've been producing a lot of educational videos on alternative asset classes and a lot of articles uh, on specific strategies. I would highly recommend um, subscribe to our distribution list and all the information on WMA, um, all the videos and articles can be, find, uh, can be found on our website, wilsonassetmanagement.com.au. Um, I think it's, you know, it, it's an exciting asset class, an asset class that would really provide a lot of benefit to any investment portfolio in the current environment. And 
I'm very passionate about WMA portfolio because the purpose of the portfolio is to democratize alternative investing. You know, historically, those asset classes, those investments, they were really only accessible um, by institutional investors due to large minimum investment ticket size, complexity, often there is not enough capacity. And WMA is there for you know, both retail and wholesale investors. It's a listed investment company. Um, so liquidity is not really a challenge here. And um, the fact that listed investment company pays fully franked um, dividends has been really attractive for our shareholders. So um, I do hope we'll, um, we'll continue growing and deliver strong investment returns. I think for a lot of our investors, it's something new to look at. And after the last 12 months, people are really looking for something new. And when it's an opportunity set that is as broad as what we've been discussing today, people start looking a little bit more closely. Yes, I hope so. <laughs> Dania from Wilson Asset Management, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening also. As always, we love hearing from you. We've received fantastic feedback. We love getting your questions. We love knowing what you want to hear more about. And we certainly know that people are thinking differently about portfolios now. Please just email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au, And I look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.